Lynn Nolden of Lynn Nolden Investment Strategy is back to give us her economic outlook and talk about cryptocurrencies. We'll start with Bitcoin again uh, this time. Lynn, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Nice to see you in the new year. Nice to see you too. Lynn, I know you've been very busy and uh, we'll talk about all these different things that have been keeping you busy. But first, I'd like to address a very interesting article you wrote recently, is, which is whether or not Bitcoin is a Ponzi scheme. First of all, uh, I think I know where you're going with this, but why don't you give us a synopsis of what this article is about? Yeah, so I kind of walked through uh, the different definitions of a Ponzi scheme. And, you know, for example, uh, the SEC has a, has a good list of what defines a Ponzi scheme or what some of the red flags are looked for. And the reason I did that is because uh, one of the common criticisms of Bitcoin is that it's a Ponzi scheme that it only, you know, you have to keep uh, people have to keep buying into it in order for it to do well, uh, which, of course, has some degree of truth to it. So I, I went through it and kind of looked at it point by point. And you can kind of break that into a narrow definition of a Ponzi scheme, like an outright fraud, versus a, a broader uh, a definition of it. And so from the narrow scope, one of the things I looked at was kind of the whole launch process of Bitcoin. And so what we saw, for example, was that the creator or creators, we don't really know if it was a person or a group, but Satoshi Nakamoto, uh, it was interesting because they released a white paper pretty much showing how to do it uh, before they launched it themselves. And so rather than kind of keep all their secrets to themselves and then launch it, uh, they you know released the white paper. They got criticism on it. They you know they kind of uh, had some interaction with uh, other experts in the field, almost like a thesis defense in a way. Uh, and then they went ahead and launched the the software. And then they gave themselves no pre mine, uh, so they didn't give themselves coins and then launch it. Uh, they had to continue to mine it just like anyone else on the network. So they had really no inherent advantage. And and that kind of contrasts to a lot of the ways that later tokens uh, launch themselves. A lot of them use pre mines. Uh, you know, to their founders and their initial investors, uh, whereas Bitcoin was launched more like a protocol uh, rather than more like an investment. And so, right. you know, by most metrics, the, the narrow definition doesn't really apply. Uh, and then the broader sense is just the idea that, you know, really any non-cash flow producing asset is only worth what you think someone else is going to pay you for it in the future. And that's true for Bitcoin. That's true for gold. Uh, that's true for, you know, fine art, uh, beachfront property that you don't plan to rent out. Uh, you know, all these kind of uh, high-end kind of scarce goods, uh, they're always based on, you know, their scarcity and their desirability. And so it kind of goes through and just compares Bitcoin to some of those other things. And one thing that they all have in common is that they have some degree of utility, right? So, you know, fine art has utility, a classic car has utility, beachfront property has utility, gold has utility, but they also have a monetary premium associated with them. And so they're bought for you know more than just their uh, utility. And Bitcoin's kind of a similar way because that for its utility, you have uh, you know permissionless international payments that pretty much can't be stopped and easy, easy mobility of funds, right? So you can just remember a 12-word seed phrase and go anywhere in the world across uh, borders and basically transfer wealth wherever you want. That That's its utility. And then it has that monetary premium uh, due to its scarcity. And so the overall point of the article is that, you know, Bitcoin still has a variety of risks. It's going through an adoption period and we'll see, you know, how far it gets. Uh, but it doesn't really meet the definition of a Ponzi scheme more so than any other kind of non-cash flow producing monetary asset. I think the word Ponzi scheme may also be lo used loosely to describe something that is not inherently trading at fair value or is difficult to value in the first place. You mentioned assets that don't generate any free cash flow. Well, Bitcoin is one of them. Um, you mentioned art, for example. Well, if I go to an auction and buy um, a famous painting for a million dollars, well, who's to say that I overpaid or underpaid? How can you value something like that? 
Well, that's actually one of the most challenging things with a non-cash flow producing asset. And so the same is true for gold. And so, for example, with gold, what I do is because it has a long history, I compare it to the broad money supply growth, you know, based on the premise that, you know, the amount of gold per person doesn't really change much uh, over time. They, it, it's mined actually almost at the exact rate of population growth, ironically. Mm -hmm. And so there's about one ounce of gold in the world per person, it, which is estimated. And so as uh, the amount of fiat currency multiplies, you'd expect gold to roughly keep pace with that. Of course, it would undershoot it and, uh, and you know, overshoot it, undershoot it as sentiment changes, but roughly it keeps up with that. And that's what we see in history. Uh, you know, a similar thing, uh, you know, beachfront property, you have these periods where it goes up very rapidly, but then if it gets overvalued, it kind of go, goes out of favor. And so with those things, it's actually, it's quite challenging to value them uh, because they don't have cash flows. You have to kind of estimate their attractiveness compared to other non-cash flow producing assets. And you can do things like compare the size of those markets compared to the, the expansion of the fiat money supply. And with Bitcoin, it really comes down to estimating how large it'll be when it's kind of finished this adoption curve. Like, you know, some people say it'll be half as big as gold's market capitalization. Some people say it'll be as big or bigger. And, you know, either way, it just comes down to estimating how big it will be. And then from there, you'd expect it to roughly grow with the rate of broad money supply increase. Well, that assumption uh, factors in constant growth of price for, for gold, right? Assuming gold doesn't collapse in value, you know, half of something that's collapsed in value is still not going to go up very much. Uh, going back to gold and Bitcoin as assets that don't generate cash flow. All right. Well, would you agree with the notion that in that case, the market is always right in, in determining the price? If gold is trading at 1835 today, let's say, then that's because the market has bid for that price and deemed that to be the fair value at any given moment. Likewise, if Bitcoin is trading at $40,000 a coin, that should be the fair value because the market at that point has indicated that should be what it's trading at, or what it should be trading at. How would you respond to that? I think there's some truth to that. Um, but of course, we can always go back in history and find where, you know, in the short term, the market can be silly. And there's that, there's that quote from uh, you know, long ago, where you know, in the short term, this, the, you know, the market's a, a voting machine, but in the long term, it's a weighing machine. And so, the market is more prone to you know having errors in the short term. Like for example, if you look at the dot com bubble, you know, there were companies trading at absolutely extraordinary valuations. You know, rather than just the Cisco's of the world, there were there were some like you know smaller companies that were trading at absolutely silly valuations. Uh, and we're seeing some of that today, actually. And so, you can have these periods of time where something trades at an irrational valuation because there's so many people that that want to get into it, uh, or you can have the opposite where no one wants to touch it. And it's kind of like toxic and it's, you know, it's super cheap. Right. Uh, but, you know, over the fullness of time, I think the market kind of weighs things. And so we've seen for 12 years now how Bitcoin has, mm -hmm. you know, changed in price by the market, uh, especially compared to some of the other tokens. Uh, and, you know, same for gold. I think gold, you know, I, I consider it fairly valued at this time. I think it's doing what we'd expect it to, uh, even though I expect in the years ahead, I, I think it'll do pretty well when I when I see that we're probably going to have uh, lower negative real yields. Okay. I Well, I think going back to the Ponzi scheme argument, if you if you were to consider that in the dot-com bubble, valuations were silly because these companies weren't actually generating any cash, but they were supposed to be. They weren't producing any output, and yet they're, they had ridiculous valuations. That makes sense to me. But let's say... Bitcoin tomorrow, let's say all the hodlers of Bitcoin decide that it should be worth $20. And so they push the price down to $20 a coin. I think that's the risk that investors are considering that uh, this, this group mentality, this herd mentality of irrationality could just all of a sudden push prices in either direction. Well, could you see that happening? 
Well, Bitcoin is certainly one of the more volatile assets out there. And so that that's really true for any kind of monetary asset. And so we've built up uh, fine art prices to very high levels. And we could see, you know, next year that a lot fewer people want to buy that fine art. And suddenly, you know, they all kind of, you know, millions of them come to the realization that they should play, they should pay a third as much. Uh, and so, you know, that's, that's one thing to monitor. Same thing, you know, there are $40 million beachfront homes, you know, throughout Florida. And you could find out that, you know, maybe, uh, you know, next year they all want to pay 10 million for those. And it's, you know, it's certainly possible, mm -hmm. you know, but there are a lot of on-chain indicators you can use. And so, for example, we can see what long-term holders are doing with Bitcoin. And we see that as the price goes up much, much higher, uh, they're slowly willing to sell, uh, you know, some of their tokens because they've, you know, they've gone up 5x or 10x in some cases. Uh, but you don't see a lot of kind of uh, movement uh, from those long-term holders. A lot of those those uh, intermediate term kind of like the near-term kind of price volatility, a lot of that has to do with the trading activity that we see on exchanges, uh, whereas the long-term holding is actually kind of a, a steady thing to watch, similar to accumulating other types of property. Okay. And uh, final note on Bitcoin, you were bullish last time we spoke a few months ago. Are you still bullish now? Uh, yes, but I mean, it's it, it's tempered somewhat by how well it's done. And so, for example, last time I was in your program was mid-December. Uh, and I said, if it if it breaks over 20,000, then the bull market's back on. And I, I expected it to. I, I'm watching the $20,000 uh, level very closely uh, because, you know, until it breaks over there, it's at risk of cons uh, further corrections and consolidations. Mm -hmm. But once it punches over 20,000 firmly into new uh, all-time highs, uh, the, the ceiling above that where it can go is, is rather high. Uh, and you know now since then it's more than doubled, and so I see a similar situation now where the the, the resistance number is somewhere around fifty thousand because that's a psychologically important number. Mm -hmm. It's a round number. Uh, you can look at you know there, there's sell orders in at that level, uh, and so that's that's kind of a resistance level that it has to break through in order to continue the bull market. Uh, and my base case is that I, I think it will continue the bull market in 2021. Uh, but you know, the, the higher you go, the yeah. less asymmetric that trade gets. You know, with any kind of 12 to 18 month view uh, compared to how it was uh, last year. And would you would you consider uh, investing in any of the other other altcoins that maybe have smaller market caps but also upside potential? Uh, so personally, no, but I can see why people do it because during the bull runs, uh, a lot of those alt uh, tokens tend to, you know, even outperform Bitcoin in many cases in, in terms of percent uh, gains. Uh, the problem that you run into is on the down leg of the cycle, you know, Bitcoin's volatile enough, but some of those altcoins fall even farther. And then unlike Bitcoin that, you know, it, it goes through this four-year halving cycle, keeps making new highs every cycle. A lot of those other altcoins, they, after they have their blow off top, they never recover in, in, in later cycles. And so, you know, really the, the two big ones are Bitcoin and Ethereum. Uh, but as you start venturing down it's, to some of those other tokens, uh, that gets increasingly risky and people should be aware of the risk they're taking on if they want to go outside of, of Bitcoin, essentially. Where are we right now in the commodity cycle?